Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. I remember having the printed out manuscript just on regular printer paper and like reading it under the desk in the middle of science class. <laughs> hey readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next? Episode 192. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, today we're talking to the second mother-daughter duo in our show's history, and I couldn't be happier to welcome the Seattle pair to the show. Rita and Zoe Amer have always bonded over books since Zoe was tiny. She's all grown up now, but the shared love of reading remains, and bonding over books is a key reason for their tight bond. Today, we discuss their history together as readers and also, as you'll hear, writers, hidden gems from the past, and the great conversations that come from bad books. Let's get to it. Rita and Zoe, welcome to the show. Thank you, Anne. Thanks for having us. It is my pleasure. I'm so excited to talk to you, another mother-daughter duo. Now, Rita, you were just telling me that you've listened to every episode of What Should I Read Next in its finished state, which is something that I have not done myself, but I believe this is our second mother-daughter episode. Episode 111 with Emily and Daniela ran the day after Christmas in December 2017. That was really sweet. Well, something that they really shared in common with you all is that they had really gotten to know each other and really bonded through the years over the love of great books. Yeah, I I was touched when I read Zoe's comment to you about what sharing my reading meant to her. Oh, Zoe, would you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. It's really wonderful, obviously, to have a parent who has such a love of books and then to be imparted that. But I'd say mom definitely influenced my readings in several ways. She would just give me books that she thought I'd like that she'd never read before. And then two, recommend me books. And three, also read books that I recommended to her. So there was like a back and forth. As a kid, I loved fantasy and certain other things. But as an adult, I think we've really kind of come together, I guess, in terms of our taste and everything. It's been wonderful to have somebody who has such omnivorous taste. I'd say like mom's taste is incredibly eclectic in books and movies and everything. And then really like have somebody who you feel like is an authority to be like, this is the good stuff, kid. (laughs) (laughs) We've had great conversations about it. When you read a great piece of literature, you can really dig into talking about human relationships in general and emotions and things like that. 
Well, it's great to hear that because, Anne, you know, uh, you having four kids, I'm sure you've experienced this. Uh, when she was in middle school, whatever, I would find something fantastic, you know, that I would offer her and say, oh, you should read this. And she'd be like, yeah. And I'd be like, oh, yeah. Oh, come in. Uh, yeah, maybe. And then <laughs> then two months, two months later, I swear, not two months later, I see her in her room reading that very book and says, oh, my friend Morgan told me about it. And I'm reading it because she recommended it to me. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know what book this is, but she has such a vendetta about for the record. There I don't know what it is. So many of them. <laughs> there really were. There's more than one. <laughs> Not to project my own family experience onto your all's relationship, but yes, this is sounding very familiar. (laughs) But Zoe, you made it through and you still love to read today. Oh, absolutely. And definitely a big part of it. I got to travel a couple of years ago for like a very extended period of time, like nine months. Mom was kind of my lifeline. Like I could pick up a book here and there at a hostel, but I'd have people come to visit me and I'd be like, give me some books. And mom would get to curate those and everything. And that was really, I think, the renaissance in our reading life together. Oh, that's so sweet. I think it's really telling that you all have chosen to create a podcast where you get to discuss books and movies and general interests as well, if I'm not mistaken. And sandwiches. Oh, we'll see the important things. (laughs) Well, actually, that was Zoe's idea. Um, There's a place here in Seattle called Central Cinema, and they will often have old movies. It's a really fun place to go, and you have dinner and so forth. And we'd go see Oh, Casablanca or something, The Big Sleep, you know, my, my classics. And, or we would read books together and we'd be sitting there chatting and talking and analyzing and, you know, applying them to real life situations or art. And, uh, Zoe said, you know, you love podcasts so much, mom. Why don't we do a podcast together having conversations that we're going to have anyway? There's kind of thrilling to have her suggest that, you know, when you, when your kid gets older, you, um, you're like the child craving the attention, you know, <laughs> and, and the approval and that kind of reminded me of the time she, um, suggested, uh, for Christmas that we get matching tattoos. And that was like, oh, oh she wants to have matching tattoos with her mom. <laughs> well, what did you choose? It was from uh, The Fire Cat by Esther Averill, which was one of those you can read books from back in the 50s or 60s that I had read to her. It was a, a cherished childhood favorite of mine. And I read it to Zoe. And so we decided that on our calves, we would each have Pickles the Fire Cat, right. who is neither good nor bad, bad nor good, but simply. He's a mixed up cat. Yeah. I might be quoting that on my deathbed. I love that that section so much. It's a great book. I love it. Is this one of those books that you heard enough as a child that now you can quote whole pages? So mom used to read it to me, but then in high school, somehow I got on this kick of bringing people over to my house <laughs> and then I would read this picture book to them. And so all my friends have heard it too. We have that book pretty well engraved on our hearts. A funny thing, actually, I was just in a tattoo parlor a couple days ago of got a lot of tattoos. I was sitting there in the chair and one of the tattoo artists walks up and goes, oh, Pickles the fire cat. <laughs> and no. uh, nobody ever recognizes this tattoo. It's been like maybe one person. Do you remember that time that we got pedicures together and the lady who was giving me my pedicure, she recognized Pickles the fire cat. You're right. Right. Because she had used it to learn how to read in English. But this tattoo artist also recognized it and he said he'd done one other Pickles the fire cat tattoo. Wow. We have a third out there. Oh, this is the beginning of a really creepy mystery novel. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I could th- see the plot go now. Speaking of mystery novels, it kind of leads to another aspect of our reading life together, which is that mom's a writer too. And she wrote a book for me when I was a kid. 
It's called A Cat with a Golden Fang. Rita, have you written anything besides The Cat with a Golden Fang or were you driven by your life circumstances? I was an academic for a while. I have a degree in dance history. So I would do research and write academic type articles. But that's the one piece of fiction that I've been able to squeeze out. That personal motivation of doing that for Zoe really spurred me to make the time to do it. I also wrote it for myself, I realized. I was thinking about this this morning when I was thinking about talking to you, and I didn't come from a family of readers. Neither of my parents read, except my dad read the newspaper. I I didn't see books in the house other than maybe Cat in the Hat and the uh, absolutely required uh, set of Encyclopedia Britannica in the living room. So there was no reading in my house, and they didn't read to me. And the day I learned to read was one of the best days of my life, and I can remember one day not being able to read and the next day being able to read. And I know that there was some pedagogy that went in there somewhere, but I don't remember any of it. I just remember suddenly feeling that I was an independent individual human being because I could pick up a book and I could read it and I didn't have to beg anybody to read to me and how meaningful and important that was and how fast my reading progressed. And I would have loved to have had The Cat with the Golden Fang to read when I was a kid. This is all new to me. That's really wonderful. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought of it. I, I hadn't I hadn't connected the two. And then when I saw Zoe, she, who had plenty of stuff to read and was always reading, not having anything that an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old that uh, was challenging to her as a reader and appropriate for her age, the, the subject matter being appropriate, because she was reading a lot of books about you know, kids facing drugs or dating, or she was reading more adult type books. And it would have been nice to stay in her innocence a little bit more, a little bit longer, (laughs) if you will. And that's sort of what I wanted to do is to give her something challenging and exciting and fun, but still innocent. Rita, that is something that I hear from readers all the time. Sometimes they're looking for commiseration and sometimes they're looking for specific book recommendations. But what they say is that they have a child who reads at quite a high level, but that means that the books that match their reading level have emotional content that is far beyond what they're able to handle. But most of them don't go and write novels for their daughter. So what happened when she realized (laughs) that Zoe could really benefit by having something else to read than what was available to her at the time? I was in a place too where I was feeling very creative, I think. I took a, it took a long time to write and I did do a lot of revisions and I didn't know what was going to happen with the story. And so I was just kind of writing as it came to me. It ended up being a mystery. There ended up being a big twist at the end that I didn't know was coming. And I swear I sat there, I wrote it and I went, no way. That's what it is. Oh my gosh. I mean, I was like blown away by, by the twist because I didn't even know it was coming. And um, so that was so much fun. And then I took the manuscript and I gave it to Zoe and asked her to be my editor. And I said, could you read this and give me feedback on it? And so she she read the, the manuscript and she pointed out some very great, you know, really good logical flaws in the story that I was like, oh, you're right. I've got to fix that. That doesn't make <laughs> sense. You know, how did he get from here to there? And she not only was the end audience, she was also part of the process and the editing. And then I found an artist in Indonesia, fantastic graphic artist who did, the book has 26 illustrations in it. He did the cover and the illustrations for me. And it was really wonderful working with this young man, even though there was somewhat of a language barrier, he really got it, you know? And then I used um, Amazon Create Space to actually create a real book. So it's got a real cover. It's got a shiny, like kind of a trade paperback look to it. It's actually on Amazon, you know, like a real book. 
a real book. It was very exciting. Zoe, was that the beginning of a very successful editing career? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I did. I have gone on to edit a lot of different things. Uh, That was fun for me. I remember having the printed out manuscript just on regular printer paper and like reading it under the desk (laughs) in the middle of science class or something in elementary school, which was fine. I passed that class. Uh, It was a great grade. I'm sure that helped me go on. And I ended up doing a lot of poetry and whatnot in college and worked at at the Literary Arts Magazine for my community college for a year, um, putting out a book. And I love editing. It really like is such a wonderful collaborative experience because you get to both build someone up and then help them improve on what they're making. And so you, you end up looking for the best things about the work. And that's that's my favorite part of editing is not you don't look for the flaws. You look for the best parts of it. Now, Rita, we know that you're an eclectic reader, and Zoe, I'm very interested in hearing about your reading taste as well. I'm not really sure how we're going to recommend books for the both of you to read. I can imagine (laughs) there are a million possibilities, or at least a solid hundred that we could go through. But you all know how this works. You are each going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you've been reading lately. Rita, your list is so long. It sounds like you read a ton right now. I do. I, and, and I have had a longer life than Zoe, so I have had more books in it, you know. Very much hope that I get to be one of those older readers one day who does have many, many decades of reading experience to remember and draw from, but I'm not there yet, and I'm jealous, Rita. <laughs> Me too. The other end of it is, is I have a more limited time left to read new books, so I've become very, very tyrannical about my reading. It's like, hey, if this doesn't grab me, if I can tell even in the first page, done. Because I don't have time. I kind of calculated how many more books I have left in my life if I live to a certain age. And I just go like, no, done. And so I I will go through books so fast because I'll go, no, this is not, this is not it. This is not it. I thought you were going to say, oh, the joy of having all those books to look forward to. (laughs) You see, this is my cynicism coming through. I like that you're taking your reading life seriously. The transcendent sensation of reading a book that does get inside and touch you and shift you and bring you in almost into collision with someone else's consciousness is such a moving and important experience. I don't want to waste my time on books if I know I'm just reading them to get through them or they're just okay or that doesn't mean they can't be fun because I love a fun book. Well, I am looking forward to hearing more about that. Zoe, how do you feel about going first? Honestly, I think my list is much shorter. I brought a curated sampling for you. Ooh, I like the way you're thinking about this. <laughs> so for my top three favorites, how I thought about it was I wanted to like give you a book from each maybe aspect, the most important aspects of my reading. So I didn't decide to go with three pieces of great literature or anything like that. I was like, I want to bring something that was meaningful or impactful to me at a different times of my life. I picked a book of poetry, I picked a piece of literature, and I picked a young adult novel. Really, it's a series. And so this first one is Protector of the Small by Tamora Pierce. It's a fantasy series where sometimes women go and train to be knights. And so this is about a woman who goes to the Royal Academy and learns how to be a knight. And it's very, you know, like feminist, like girls can be and do whatever they want to do. And so she learns to fight and she's really great at leading people and everything. So it was a very like inspiring series to me when I was younger. Do you continue to read fantasy today? Definitely. I have to pick and choose because I don't have as much time to read as I did 
I used to just be voracious, but that was one of my first genres. And that was a genre that my dad really um, loved as well. And so he gave me a lot of books. One that I've never finished is Watership Down. Someday I'll get back to that. I didn't read that until I was an adult. I mean, just a few years ago, I finished that. It's a book full of tragedy and horror, really. I mean, it's about bunnies. Who knew (laughs) how much was beneath that very deceptive cover? Okay, so you have some fantasy to look forward to in your reading life is what you're saying. Absolutely. There's never a dearth of fantasy. (laughs) So my second book that I picked was a book of poetry, one that I think probably very few people have actually read because it comes from kind of a local press here in Seattle called Chin Music. They publish sort of unusual books as very much art objects. So the books themselves are really beautiful. And they tend to have a focus on crossovers between Japan and America. This book is by a poet named Yoshinori Henguchi called Lizard Telepathy, Fox Telepathy. And it has um, it has his photography in it as well as his poetry. And then it has these dual translations. And I loved the object of the book itself because it's really beautiful. The way it's laid out is really interesting. They don't put the poems next to each other, the dual translations. They're all kind of mixed and interspersed throughout. So you really look at the shape of each poem. It's just a beautiful book and it has a very eclectic sensibility to it and kind of a surrealist sensibility to it where you read it and the poems aren't straightforward necessarily. They have a lot of wacky things happen in them. And it just really inspired me when I was learning to write poetry in college and everything. How did you pick this one up? Is it because it is local or is it because of your connection to that world? To some degree, it is because it is local. We actually have a bookstore in Seattle that's poetry only. I didn't know that. What's it called? I think it's the only one in the nation. Um, It's called Open Books, for the record. And I just like to go in there sometimes and browse and pick up some poetry and hope that serendipitously I'll find something that I really connect with. I was trolling the shelves and the title really caught my eye. I can see why. (laughs) Zoe, what did you choose for your final favorite? Is this the one representing, did you say, a great work of literature? Yeah, this is kind of my like adult favorite. It's a book, as mom described earlier, that was a really transcendent reading experience that shifted and really moved something inside when I read it. It's To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. I wouldn't be surprised if someone on this show has picked it before. It's a really incredible book and it kind of straddles literature and poetry, I'd say. Virginia Woolf's style is so poetic and stream of consciousness and uh, ephemeral. The central metaphor of the book, which is the lighthouse, also does what I think great poetry does, which is kind of encapsulate this really profound sense of like life and death being kind of next to each other. I don't know. It's just a wonderful book. I mean, Anne, can you see why I have such great conversations about literature? (laughs) Anyone who can use the words transcendent reading experience and telepathy in one conversation, (laughs) I think would be a worthy literary chatting companion. I get so much out of our conversations. I'm sure you do. Zoe, I always am interested in hearing how readers approach how they choose their favorites. And I do love that you've chosen these books that represent different pieces of your reading life. It does make it a little harder to draw together a composite. So we're going to keep talking. Here's the thing. You can recommend me almost any genre and I will enjoy a good book in that genre, I guess is the takeaway there. Mm-hmm. The last book that I like applied with and ended up changing was a graphic novel, Uzumaki by Junji Ito. And it's like a horror graphic novel. So yeah, it is kind of a disparate collection of books. You contain multitudes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's see where you get it from. Rita, it's your turn. Okay. 
I tried to pick three desperate books in terms of genre, but that have a, a, a golden thread running through them for me. And I thought about this so hard, Anne. I, and one of the reasons I never applied before is I thought, I have no idea how to express this because it's really, it's elusive. Then I read this uh, great book. It's called Lincoln's Virtues, an ethical biography. And in it, the author describes the writing of Thomas Jefferson versus Abraham Lincoln. I thought, oh my gosh, that describes it. I think if I tell Anne that, she'll be able to flex her Rosie the Riveter muscles and get me some really good books around this. The author said that Thomas Jefferson is a great writer, obviously, but when you read his writing, you're connecting with the mind. You know, it's, it's, it's brilliant, it's mental, it's intellectual. But with Abraham Lincoln, even though he was also brilliant, his writing was embodied. His writing, his words, his expression flowed through his emotions and his body and his lived experience to come out on the paper. It creates a very different feeling when you read Lincoln versus when you read Jefferson. And I've noted that that's the kind of books that I want to read for the rest of my life. Something can be written extremely beautifully and yet not touch that chord at all, even though the writing is very good. And something can be written in a mediocre fashion, but it touches that chord so beautifully. And just one example of that that I know you'll know is I personally don't think that The Sparrow, the writing is the greatest writing I've ever read, but it touches the chord because it's so immediate, it's so embodied, and it's so felt. You you are just wrapped up in that world and in that the writer's consciousness about the world. And so that's like an example of one where maybe the writing isn't, you know, it's not Dostoevsky, but it's the kind of book I want to read. So that was that was an extra one that I'm stuffing into the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and the first one I chose called An Infinity of Little Hours by Nancy McGuire. Do you know that book? I do not. Oh, Anne, Anne, I think you would love it just from hearing what you what you do love. It's a nonfiction book written about five young men in the 1960s who became cloistered, can I say it, Carthusian monks. They basically go into a little cell. They're cloistered. They don't talk to anybody from one end of the day to the other. The only time they see people is when they silently process in to do their praising and singing and so forth. And then they process out and they might have a lunch with each other maybe once a month. And that's the only time they get to talk to another human being. And of course, the purpose of their life is to meditate, to pray, to go deeper and deeper into their own spirituality and their own soul, to commune with their own souls. This book is written amazingly by a woman. One of the men or several of them actually ended up leaving the order and she married one of them. The way in what? which she is, yes, he left the order and became a, a lay person and she married him. And that's how she learned this story. And she is writing a nonfiction book about it. Oh, so she wasn't a writer who fell in love with one of her subjects. No, no. Either way, it's a great story. And she gets inside the detail. I mean, I would be reading and going, oh, what are they going to have for lunch today? It, everything was, it was granular, but it was, it was engaging. It was visceral. It, it brought me into both their physical and their spiritual lives. I don't know. I, I can't say enough about it. I found it a spiritual experience just reading the book as well as a great literary experience. And uh, I think you would like it, Anne. I do. 
That sounds so interesting. It's rare you can say how beautiful a book is. And I loved it so much. I, I then I'm going to shift over to something light and fun and adventurous. It's called Something Missing by Matthew Dix. And it's a little bit of a, a thriller, kind of a cozy thriller, if you will. And the main character is a thief. He's so interesting. He basically has what he calls clients. He uh, surveils people and he picks them out and then he gets into their homes and he he goes and visits them, if you will, on a weekly basis. And he makes his living by, he gets to know their lives so well that like he go, okay, they went shopping this week and there's a jar of pickles in the back. And now they're not going to miss that jar of pickles because they just bought a new jar of pickles. So clearly they've forgotten about that jar of pickles. Or he'll take like a necklace or an earring and he'll hide it in the bottom of their jewelry case. If it's gone, they'll be able to find it so they won't know that they're being stolen from. But he'll come back week after week and if he notices they haven't noticed that it's gone, then he'll take it. And so he makes his living this way. The minutiae is fascinating and it's so clever. Uh, and he's not a bad guy. He's not going to ever hurt anybody. He would never go there when anybody was home. It is creepy. Yes, I admit that. <laughs> But I, and I don't want to give too much away, but as the story evolves, more things happen and other individuals come in who are not benign. He becomes the, the protagonist and hero of the book in that way. But it was such a bit of a romp. It was joyous. I could just feel that this author was in this person's skin. He was walking in his skin and the author obviously must be a, a decent person. And so his character is a decent person, even though he's doing these nefarious things. And I like that. I like that tension, that balance that he hits very well. It's, you know, it's not a great work of literature. The writing is not gem-like or anything like that. It's workmanlike. It takes you right along. It's fun. And it's got that presence. The author is present as a person in the book. I can just feel him in there. The last one, um, I'm going for kind of a deep cut. This is from 1940 Ooh. by a, a guy named Frank Baker, and it's called Miss Hargraves. And it is a delight. This is another little, this is a little gem that I would, I'm so glad that I found. It is about these uh, two young men, two young roustabouts, English roustabouts, you know, for a lark. They make up this fake uh, old lady who's, a, I think it, he says is his cousin or something. And she's really eccentric and she's got this parrot and they really, you know, tell people about her and they use her as an excuse to get out of things. And all of a sudden one day knock on the door and who's there but Miss Hargraves, this figment that they made up has come to life. And she comes into this guy's life and she just turns it topsy-turvy and he can't figure out what to do and how does he get rid of her. But then she's like this kind of alive creature now. She's like a real person. So he has certain qualms and guilt and so forth, kind of like Dr. Frankenstein, except he actually has a, a good moral sense and he, he sees her as a person, so he's not going to be mean to her. And this one sticks the ending. And that's something that I love about a really great book. They get to the end. You're going along. Okay, it's good. It's interesting. And a lot of time they don't stick the ending. The, the ending kind of, kind of goes flabby. And you're like, oh, you know, all right, the rest of the book was good. And this one, it just takes you right to that end. And it's just like a little pinpoint, boom, perfect. I know I've read another book where people have conjured real characters into being. Ooh. I, I don't, what are they? I don't know. It's just, I'm going to remember in the shower later today. Zoe, you said that you could read any number of books in different genres and enjoy them all if they're great books. Right. They're not all great books. So now's your chance to tell me about a book that did not work for you. 
Yeah, The Magician by Lev Grossman is what I kind of ended up putting in here. It's an example of a fantasy book. This is a book that is really popular, definitely a bestseller. And the thing is, it has a lot of merits, but I just, I hate read this book. I hated it as I could not stop reading it and trying to pick it apart. (laughs) If he wrote this book as, you know, a provocative piece, it definitely worked. It's a, it's a fantasy book that's supposed to sort of take you from Narnia and like the place of maybe the Chronicles of Narnia to an adult place. He throws in a bunch of different genres, I guess, time travels in there and all these other fantasy tropes. And there's so much that's really clever about this book, about the character who, you know, Lick learns to do magic. There's hot Harry Potter elements and everything. But there are more like real consequences and grittiness to the book itself. But I don't know, there's almost an arrogance to the storytelling, which I'm sure Lev Grossman is a wonderful person. But I don't know, there just was something so infuriating about the flavor of the book because it really took these tropes and conventions and and said, like, I'm going to play with them, but then didn't end up having better continuity than the source materials or having something that made it work logically, the internal logic of the book and everything. I don't know. It just, it frustrated me a lot. And the main character also was just kind of a brat, but it was a really polarizing book for me. Like I still read the entire thing and vent about it and complain about it to mom. (laughs) I, I read it too, and I understand exactly. There were it, there was some really good stuff in that book, and I understand why people like it. But Zoe and I both felt that the author felt that he was above his his material. Yes, that's it. So it just came off as condescending. Yeah, to some degree. Yeah, totally. And so that's why I couldn't enjoy it. I didn't even like. I didn't want to enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll try to find you some books with a little more soul. Thanks, <laughs> Rita. What hasn't worked out for you? Well, this one, again, I tried to choose something that would illustrate the Jefferson side of the dichotomy here. I've chosen uh, Flaubert's Parrot by Julian Barnes. Actually, pretty much anything Julian Barnes has written. And it it guts me because his books, especially Flaubert's Parrot, has everything I love. It has history. It has literary references. It's got whimsy, you know, real intelligence. It's well-written. You know, you'd think, oh, checking my list. And Julian Barnes, from when I've seen interviews with him, appears to be a really gracious English gentleman. So, you know, like a good person. But when I read it, it is so intellectual. It is so mental that I don't feel a sense of that gracious English gentleman in the book. So it's got the right ingredients, but it doesn't touch the cord. Yeah, exactly. So wait, what have you been reading lately? You don't have to apologize or say you haven't been reading a lot. Like two books is <laughs> completely acceptable. Yeah, I was going to say, this is uh, going to be nice and simple for you. I do have a lot of books that have uh, bookmarks in them on my shelf that I've been reading for years. Oh, we can go to that support group together. Maybe someday I'll finish these books. But the one that I have been actively reading is uh, Wuthering Heights, another classic. So this is one that mom encouraged me to read because it's one of her favorite classic novels. Over the years, I tried. I picked it up a number of times and couldn't get past the first page. I know that my reading level is certainly high enough to read it, but the style did kind of set me back for a really long time and made it hard to engage with. And we also watched miniseries of Wuthering Heights or a movie when I was younger, and I I do remember I disappointed mom a lot by being like, oh, I can't handle this. It's too corny. It's too like romantic and gross. 
<laughs> it took the right set of time and circumstance for me to be like come into my own to read this book because I'm loving it now. Got past that first page and kind of got used to the style. I don't know. I've been in a lot more relationships since I was 13. So even if it is really melodramatic to some degree or just very intense, I can now glean the like feeling and potency of the writing and of the like romance in the novel and everything. I'm digging it. Rita, since you've listened to every episode, you probably know that this was a book that was not for me. I know. Uh That's in a way I kind of encouraged Zoe to bring it up because I I thought it would be interesting to get another point of view because I know that that's one that that you didn't care for. And the one thing that I proposed to Zoe is, is to look at it not so much as that these are actual people, but that Emily Bronte was raised isolated on the moors. Imagine these girls in the dark kitchen, the wind howling, and then their servants would like tell them ghost stories and myths from the time. And and everything was very large and overblown. And then they were being raised also at the time of the uh, where the romantic period was blossoming. So really, it seemed to me this book is more along the lines of reading Greek mythology or reading Norse mythology than it is reading about people. That kind of gives me uh, a different perspective on it. Then I don't have to like them. It doesn't matter whether I like them or not. It's about their elemental um, influences. Yeah, that's one thing that I love about it is just the amoral quality of the characters or the two main characters of Kathy and Heathcliff especially is just you can't relegate them to morality. I'm a little distracted by the fact that relegate was the word that kicked me out of the state spelling bee in third grade. Oh, really? <laughs> and I in the middle. Uh-oh. Yikes. Sorry to uh, bring up a traumatic episode in your past. I didn't know. I was stepping on a landmine with that one. <laughs> but yes, that's an excellent point that when you read it through that lens, you can have a lot more patience with their decisions. Yeah. <laughs> Rita, what are you reading right now? Well, one book that I discovered at a library sale, I read this in grade school. Do you remember those flyers that they used to give? And did they, I don't know if they still did it. You're a lot younger than I am. I think they were scholastic books and you'd get this little pamphlet and it would have all these books listed and you check the books that you wanted. Oh yeah. They still send those home. Oh, do they? Oh my gosh. It was the highlight of my year. Oh, and when I was a kid, the books were like between 35 and 75 cents. So I could get a lot because my parents were willing to, you know, Mm -hmm. that wasn't that much money. That has actually changed. Yeah, I'm sure. Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine. It must be so expensive now. And so I would always have the biggest pile of books. I always knew which was my pile because it was always at least twice as high as anybody else's pile. And one of these that I got, I can't believe they had this in Scholastic Books. It's The Lives and Times of Archie and Mehitable by Don Markey. Have you ever read that? I have not. It's actually poetry. It was written around the turn of the 20th century. And Don Markey, he was a newspaper guy and he had a column. And so he decided to write this kind of poetical stuff because the margins could be really wide and he could write less. It's an ongoing series about a cockroach and a cat. And the cockroach is Archie. And at night when the office is closed up, he jumps on the keys of the typewriter and he writes all all these columns and poems. And his friend is the cat Mahinable, who in a past life was Cleopatra. Oh, wow. It's wacky. It's clever. And the illustrations that are done are by George Harriman or Edward Harriman. I think it's George Harriman, who did the Crazy Cat comics back in the day in the 20s. The illustrations and the poetry are, are equal partners in this 
It is so delightful, so crazy, so whimsical. You do have to have a little bit of a sense of being okay with the past, you know, with with the way things were said in the past, or there was a lot of jargon and slang from the past. So you have to be kind of patient with, sometimes you have to look stuff up, you know, just to kind of know what something meant. But mostly it's witty. Witty is all get out, both illustrations and the uh, poetry. And, And one of the things that I think is very fascinating is that the illustrator was actually a black man who was passing as white at the time. And when you when you know that and you look at his illustrations, it really gives a new meaning. You, you begin to see that there's depths, that he's bringing things to it that a lot of the times the white eyes of the time wouldn't have been able to discern. But then you, you, you see it and you go, wow, you know, that is really clever. Zoe, you had mentioned on our submission form that you would love to read more that deals with world history. You also mentioned that you would love to make a career as a pulp romance novelist. So I can't let that little drop go by. (laughs) So I would totally take a recommendation of a pulpy romance novel if you have anything. I'm not sure what it is, but I, I love that genre so much. I don't know, maybe it's irony poisoning, as they say these days, but I love pieces of media that would just make me laugh that are so like fallibly human. So that's what I love the romance genre for or the erotic fiction genre or what have you. And I would really love, yeah, to just dip my toes into that. If I could make a portion of my income off of writing something as ridiculous as lunch after dark (laughs) or something like that, (laughs) I would do it. Maybe that's going to be the title of my forthcoming uh, erotic novel. Tell me about your world history interests. Well, especially having a mom with such vast knowledge and interest in world history and everything, we have a lot of really interesting conversations. And I get a lot of fascinating information about the world and history through her and her explaining reading her reading to me and whatnot. But I would really enjoy something that gives a broader sense of tying together world history and events. Yeah, I don't know. I do a lot of reading that is very fiction based, but I love the genre of alternative history and things like that. So I'm very open to that and would love to like get some concrete information out of a book that I read soon. Okay. And Rita, what are you looking for in your reading life? Forgotten little gems of books. And uh, what made me think of this was uh, recently read uh, Edith Wharton novellas. One was called The Touchstone and the other Bunner Sisters. They were fantastic, so worth my time to read. They were beautifully written. They were uh, interesting and uh, perceptive. And I would like to find some more books that have kind of been lost and are really still worth reading. So you both have eclectic reading taste on your own. And when you look at your reading lives as a composite, because I'd really like to find books that you both could enjoy. It both makes it harder because your reading lives are so different and easier because it considerably helps narrow down. Zoe is a poetry lover. Rita, it looks like you go towards more classic older books. Yeah, generally speaking, I guess uh, those have been ones that have stuck in my head. She's quite a modern reader, but she is not a poetry lover. I kind of have my in my head, it's poetry. And I don't care for generally poetry, even though my daughter is a poet and I do respect that. (laughs) What is it about poetry? It is so dense and so rich that I can only consume maybe a line or two and then I just can't take any more. Well, I think too that you want to dig into people and relationships, which can be a Mm. lot harder to convey in poetry or to talk about. It's much more about the individual moment and experience. You're also not a lover of the surreal, which is 
all too common in poetry. She knows. Do you think there's hope for her though, Zoe? I mean, do you think you could find a way in? Oh, absolutely. She's loosened up considerably over the years on her uh, anti-poetry platform (laughs) because she, you know, she started saying, okay, okay, I like, I like some of the, the rhymey, wimey stuff. I like T.S. Eliot. I like this and that. And then she started coming to me like, oh, and I heard this uh, slam poet in a podcast and it's really kind of an atypical slam poem and it tells this amazing story and I loved it. So yeah, she's, it's a slippery slope and she's, she's sliding down it a little bit. Okay. We're going to start with poetry since that is your daughter's field, but we're going to wade you in gently. All right. I appreciate that. I know a lot of people think that they don't like poetry because I think they get this idea that nothing means what it says and can't you just be clear and take off your beret and put down your little Paris pipe (laughs) and, you know, get over yourself and just say words in order that makes sense. But poets are really careful with their words and they know how to wield them for maximum emotional effect. And that's something that you like. Also, they can do it very densely. And since you mentioned feeling like you might only have so many books left in your life, I mean, all of us only have so many books left in (laughs) our lives, but you wouldn't necessarily know that that was true of me based on the way I make some of my reading decisions. There (laughs) is a poet. She's the Poet Laureate of Mississippi. Her name is Beth Ann Fennelly, and she has written some short pieces, and I think you're going to like her, possibly be willing to branch out into her other works. So I'm going to throw three books at you, because if you can save time by reading short books, then you can read more of them. (laughs) I'll give you three of them. So it's not really a net gain, but hopefully it is for your reading life. So the first is Heating and Cooling. These are 52 micro memoirs, and it is just that. They are stories of things that happened to her, and some are just a few sentences long. The longest ones are a few pages. They're true, and they read more as moments than as short stories. But what she does so well here is talk about relationships in a way that is evocative and gripping and visceral three things that you really like. And oh, she can so powerfully write about desperately having to pee, but then about (laughs) something awful that happened in her, her family that really stung, that still sticks with her. And I think as humans, we can relate to both the comic and the tragic. And because these are so short and so compact, it's almost whiplashy going from one stop on the spectrum of human emotions to another so quickly. But I mean that in a good way. So I'd start with heating and cooling. You may, for the fun discussion potential, enjoy reading her book, Great with Child, Letters to a Young Mother. Fennelly's a teacher at Old Miss, and this is the correspondence between her and one of her teachers who grew up and was pregnant and had questions, and so they started writing letters back and forth. And can you imagine writing letters back and forth to your old professor who's so good with words, <laughs> who, I mean, what a great friendship to have in your life. So you may feel a little bit jealous about that reading this book, but she does write about approaching parenthood. And Zoe is a daughter. You may find this interesting. And Rita is a mother. You may be able to say, yes, exactly. Or hold on, my experience was totally different. And then if you did want to wade your way into the poetry after, I hope, falling in love with her writing in those two books, I begin with her first collection. It's called Open House. And there's a wide range of topics covered there. I do think as far as the beret pipe scarf that I'll fling over my chest with their nose in the air factor is concerned, I think you'll find her friendly. Sounds good. Okay. For our next selection, I really hope you both haven't read Kindred by Octavia Butler because I really would like to tell you about it. I might be on my shelf, but I certainly have not read it yet. I have read it, but go ahead. It's, it's very good. 
this is a classic. It was published in 1979, but I just read it recently. And I was so struck about how this could have been published yesterday. And I think it's perfect for you all because it combines fantasy and history and the emotional pull, things that you both really enjoy in a really powerful way. Also, something that we didn't discuss, Zoe, but that I had in mind as I was thinking about our conversations today is that you said that you don't have as much reading time as you have in your past and that you wouldn't mind having a shorter book that you could drop in your bag and carry around with you so you could actually spend more time reading. Right. Beth Ann Fenley's works are short by their nature, and Kindred also really packs a punch. It's just about 250 pages. You could sit down and read it in an afternoon or in chunks here and there and still finish it very quickly. And I think you'll want to because it has amazing narrative drive. To understand why this has such emotional pull, I think it's helpful to know Butler's inspiration for writing the story. This was published in 1979, and at the time, Butler said that she was growing really frustrated with what she saw as young people and how they were interpreting the history of the United States. And she said that she heard a lot of talk like, oh, well, if I had been alive when slavery happened, I wouldn't have stood for that, or I would have done better. She thought, oh, you just, you know what happened, but you have no idea what that was actually like for those people. Yeah, it it really is one of those ones that plucks the cord. I mean, she gets into the bodies and the lives of the people in the book to make you really understand that you can't apply our standards to how they reacted because they were living in a, you know, the totality of their lives was completely different. Well, what she said she wanted to do was very deliberately set her book in 1976 at the Bicentennial, where America is 200 years old, yet they're still dealing with racial problems from 200 years ago. Butler is well-known as a science fiction novelist. This is not really a science fiction story. It is definitely fantasy, but it's also been called a fantasy novel for people who don't like fantasy novels. Now, Zoe, I don't know how you, as a devoted fantasy reader, feel about descriptions like that. (laughs) I think that fantasy is such a slippery category. I'm happy for anybody to read anything that could under that umbrella. <laughs> I'd like to think that this book can be a way in for readers who don't think they want to read fantasy novels. Butler herself didn't like these labels because she said, oh, you put a label on it and people think, oh, I don't want to read a book like that. Even if they actually picked it up, they would really love this book. So I just want to say, as far as books with universal appeal, this is a really powerful one. And it is one that uses time travel. The reason this is fantasy and not sci-fi is there's no time machine. There's no scientific explanation about how they went back in time. It's just a device to take this contemporary, modern, Black feminist in 1976 and suddenly throw her back over 200 years. She goes from 1976, Los Angeles, to 1815, Maryland, on a slave plantation, and suddenly with fresh eyes, she's seeing before her the horrors of what a slave plantation was like in the antebellum South. It's a really powerful device. And Butler posted these reminders to herself like writers do in her workspace. She had one that read, tell stories filled with facts, make people touch and taste and know, make people feel, feel, feel. I mean, Rita, I really hope that this touches the board for you because she shares the facts and yet through her character's eyes, she really makes you feel their weight. And I just can't believe that even though this was published 40 years ago, it still feels so fresh, so important. I get into trouble when I think, oh, reading that book will make me noble because then it becomes something (laughs) like homework and then I miss out on a 
wonderful book for too long because of the story I've told myself about it. But what Butler is writing about is headline news today. So now is a great time to read this book. And I really feel like not only is it a timely book, but oh, it's just so good. She's a great writer. I'll have to reread it because it's been been quite a while. Yeah, you've got me fired up to read this one. There's so much to talk about. You can talk about the text itself and the relationships within it and her experience going back and forth in time because she does go back and forth in time repeatedly. There's so much to talk about in the story, but just how we individually connect to the story, what the issues therein mean for our society today. I mean, you could have your own graduate seminar on this. Yeah. Okay, we've done poetry, which is Zoe's niche. Kindred, also fantasy, but not a brand new book. For our third selection, well, we'll say our third author, really. I'm thinking of Graham Greene, specifically The Third Man. Oh, is this a book you all have read? I Graham Greene. I have not actually read that one. Have you read other works by Graham Greene? Yes. In fact, gosh, I just read one recently. I can't remember the title of it. He's a wonderful writer. I don't think Zoe's ever read any Graham Greene. I was debating whether to go with his spiritual work or his, he called them his entertainments. But if we wanted to go in his spiritual direction, I was wondering about The End of the Affair or The Power and the Glory. I have read The End of the Affair, but I've never read The Power and the Glory. Okay. Well, here's what I like about The Third Man for you. First of all, it's short. It's 150 pages. Zoe, this is definitely one that you could tuck into your bag. Sounds good. It was first published in 1949. It has absolutely stood the test of time. Uh, there's a great film to go with it, and we know how you all feel about such things, which starred mm-hmm. Orson Welles. So, I mean, mm-hmm. classic upon classic potential here. This is a book that is fast-paced, completely absorbing. It might be a stretch to say that it plays greatly into world history, but... But it does give a picture of the post-World War uh, to Germany and the black markets and the, all the forces that came into play when the lawlessness uh, crept in. Yes, you can definitely see this unfolding. I mean, even if you haven't seen the movie, this is the kind of book that you can see unfolding in your head, like mm. in black and white stills. It's set in post-war Vienna, pleasingly shady for this kind of mystery. Many readers have heard of Harry Lyme without knowing why, but he invites an old friend who's a writer to join him in Vienna. He arrives just in time to go to his friend's funeral. This friend apparently died in an accident on the street, but of course he believes that there is more to it than that. The writer's determined to clear his friend's name and starts an investigation of his own, which I know is the plot of many a thriller, but it's really done great justice here and very succinctly. It's a small book. It really packs a punch. And it's one of those ones that I think you'll be glad you've read. And if you do like this, one of Green's entertainments, Rita, you use the word spiritual quite a bit today. And his other work could definitely be worth exploring, especially if you just read and enjoyed one of his books recently. Wasn't he a convert to the Catholic Church? He was and wrote with the zeal of the convert. Yeah. So we talked about Beth Ann Fenley, specifically Heating and Cooling, which I think would be a great place to jump in, Kindred by Octavia Butler, and The Third Man and Others by Graham Greene. Of those three books, what do you think you all will read next? What do you think, Zoe? I'm going to propose that we pop over to the poetry bookstore that we talked about and <laughs> see if they have any Beth Ann Fenley there. I have an Octavia Butler on my shelf and it might be Kindred and I might have to pick that up as my next like post-Wuthering Heights book. Actually probably be a very interesting contrast. Yeah. 
I, I, I would be into heating and cooling. I'd be into to, to checking that out next. And it, I like that idea of the sort of the micro memoir. I love the idea of going from Kathy and Heathcliff to a <laughs> contemporary Los Angeles feminist. Right. <laughs> Zoe, I hope this is your opportunity to get your mom to the poetry store. And Rita, I hope you're glad that you go. She never regrets going to a bookstore. So it should be pretty easy to roll her out the door. (laughs) (laughs) Where you go, I will follow. (laughs) Poetry wise. (laughs) Well, thank you all so much for talking books with me today. This has been a pleasure. Oh, thank you. We had such fun. Yeah, it's been lovely to meet you, Anne. Hey readers, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rita and Zoe, and I'd love to hear what you think they should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 192, and it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. If you'd like to hear more about their joint reading life, they chat about what they're reading together on their podcast, Foibles. Find the link in show notes or by searching Foibles, F-O-I-B-L-E-S, in your favorite podcast app. Readers, we've got another great episode coming your way next week. Subscribe to What Should I Read Next Now so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We will see you next week. In the meantime, you can catch us on Friday for a new episode of One Great Book. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B is in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Our newsletter subscribers are the first to know all the What Should I Read Next news and happenings. If you are not on the list, you can fix that now by visiting whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter to sign up for our free weekly delivery. If you enjoy this podcast, we'd appreciate your support. Please share it with a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or check out my book I'd rather be reading, The Delights and Dilemmas of the Reading Life. Thanks to the people who make this show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify 
and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long.